Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome into episode 56 of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here as always with Chris Whittingham. Thank you for finding us. We're on iTunes. Also, if you are an Android person, find us on Google Play, Stitcher, our hosting app, Podbean. We have a YouTube channel as well, and we have other podcasts in our network. So be sure to check out Miami Heat Beat, Three Yards Per Carry, our Dolphins podcast, which is Thursday now. will be Monday, Thursday during the season. Balls Cast, which is our humor podcast, taking a look at sports, politics, culture in Miami, the podcast for people who live in Miami. And the debut of Pitch Invasion was last week with Chris Whittingham, my co-host here, hosting that. That will be going three times a week during the World Cup before it settles into a weekly schedule. Also, this is appropriate for the guests that we're having today. We actually announced last week that we will be starting a wrestling podcast starting up in uh, in late July called Smark Your Territory with Josh Chappelle and Mr. Bill. I don't, I'm not even going to refer to him by his real name. You know him <laughs> as Mr. at Mr. Bill 11 on Twitter. So definitely check that out. And I'm sure they'll probably be trying to call this guy up for some wrestling stuff because I don't, I don't think a lot of people who follow football know this about Alex Marvez. How many years, Alex, were you the wrestling writer for the Miami Herald? Well, my, I started, and guys, great to be with you, by the way, and thank you so much for the for the kind words and the chance to be on this platform. I think you guys are going to absolutely kill it with Five Reasons Sports Network. I mean, it is filling a much-needed void for quality information and material in the South Florida market, especially when it comes to sports radio down there. So congratulations on that. We thank uh, you for reading the script correctly. No, no problem. I got the memo. No, no problem. <laughs> the check is in the mail, as, as usual, so just like an old intercom check. A bit of about 2024. Um, but the, the point being that, uh, you know, in this case with wrestling, I, I was a, a fan since I was like five, six years old, right? And of course, all my views of the world are shaped upon pro wrestling. You have to understand this. For example, when I look at Russians, I just think of Ivan Koloff. So, you know, when Ivan Putsky was fighting for the people of Poland against Ivan Koloff when I was six years old, I just became mesmerized by this. Became in, involved knowing what goes on behind the scenes about in March of 1987 uh, when I first began getting the Wrestling Observer newsletter. And I got tipped off to that going to old Miami Beach Convention Center. And uh, the original Sheik, Ed Farhat, at age 61, fought Bruiser Brody up and down the stands. It was one of the greatest, most memorable matches I have ever seen. And so as I started to get interested in that and I began to work at the Miami Herald, you know, in October of 1987, they gave me a chance in, in summer of 89 to start writing a wrestling column because they ran a survey. What do readers want to see? And the response to the column, which was a, a biweekly column, was so great that they made it a weekly column. Actually, at one point had a 976 number. And Chris, I know you're too young for that, Ethan. I know you got grounded for calling the wrong types of them. But the point is that, you know, you would call in for wrestling information. So I had this thing going. Uh, but then I left the Herald and I took it with me to, to Dayton Daily News. I wrote it there. I wrote it at the Rocky Mountain News when I jumped there to cover the Broncos for their two Super Bowl years. Brought it back to the South Florida Sun Sentinel. Kept writing it for Scripps Howard News Service till 2011, 2012. And guys, 
be honest with you, I had lost a lot of interest in wrestling then. I am not a WWE fan. I think that Vince McMahon, somewhere on my scale of, of dislikability between 1 and 10, is about a 27. So <laughs> I just wasn't really enjoying the product. I've rediscovered it. I enjoy it a lot more. I still follow the business very closely from a business financial standpoint. It behooves me to do that. I have a great time looking back at old stuff. But, you know, another lifetime ago, I'm sure that the Smarks are, are much more into it than I am in a lot of ways, although I still love my New Japan, Puro Areso, New Japan Pro Wrestling. That's my shtick, a little ring of honor as well. And I do follow that. Still get a kick out of it. But now I'm just a football guy now. I'm an employed writer. You know how that goes. Yeah, well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll get to that writing thing here a little <laughs> bit later. But you can find Alex, uh, not for wrestling stuff, but for football stuff. He's one of the staples on Sirius XM NFL. So Alex hosts a show there, does a great job there, and also was on with us uh, on 790 for a little while. As he mentioned that Entercom check is, is coming at some point. So we're going to talk football on this one, Alex, and we're going to go back to your Dolphin days for the first three parts of this. You covered the Dolphins from 1999 to 2007 we didn't realize that those would be the good old days actually um because they didn't seem like it at the time but compared to some of what's gone on recently it's it's been a little better i want to start here and with these two guys and they're always associated together because of course uh one of them was brought in because the other one didn't want to coach anymore and then the guy who was brought in ended up taking over but the jimmy johnson dave wants that days what do you remember most you know, it was sad in a way because, you know, listen, and I'm still a little bit bright eyed at that point in my life. I covered the NFL for four years. But growing up in South Florida, I mean, Jimmy Johnson, when I was in high school, I mean, he was an icon, right? I mean, the guy who took the U to all these national championships did it with swag. And of course, Dan Marino, right? I mean, arguably the greatest quarterback to ever play the game. So you're around these guys and it doesn't take you long to realize that they don't like each other. And that they're not in unison. And when you look back at Jimmy Johnson and you want to talk about mistakes that were made during his era, the biggest mistake, in my opinion, was not trading Dan Marino the minute he got there. And I say that because Jimmy was never going to run the type of offense that Danny wanted to run. Danny wanted to throw the football. Jimmy wanted to run the football. And it was such a clash between these two guys. And by the time 1999 came around... Danny was unhappy. His body was breaking down. Jimmy wanted to be anywhere else. And, you know, he brought in Dave Wanstead to basically be his replacement. If you remember, Dave Wanstead was hired about three hours after Jimmy Johnson's resignation was handed in. I mean, there was no job search, no minority candidates, Rooney rule, anything. They just gave the baton to Dave Wanstead to run with it. Now, Jimmy left him a great defense. And, and we know Dave knew how to coach defense at the time. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But when it came to the offensive side of the football, when it comes to these defensive coaches, they have a certain mentality, and a lot of them do, and it's a very conservative mentality. Now, Bill Belichick breaks the mold because he sees the game from all three phases. From Dave, he's viewing it through the eyes of a defensive coach. So it was a very conservative attack, to say the least. Now, you'd win games, and it was funny because I'll do my little Dave impression here. And by the way, you have to understand, as, as Ethan and Chris, as you probably know, Dave is a friend, and I really like Dave Wanstead, the person. I don't know too much about Dave Wanstead, the coach, in a lot of ways because Dave and I didn't talk a whole lot of X's and O's and scheme and things like that. That really really wasn't him, but, you know, with my relationship with him. But, you know, it's like, Dave, you know, uh, it, this will be a Dave Wanstead news conference. Uh, we're going to you're gonna play Dave. We're going to run the football, and we're going to win the game in the fourth quarter. Uh, Dave, <laughs> if, if you pass the ball early, you may be ahead by 30 points and can just sit on a lead. At, not, 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 not. We're going to run the ball. And a play defense, we're going to win the game in the fourth quarter. And it was the Dolphins won. I mean, think about it. Dave Wanstead, if I'm not mistaken, finished his career with the Dolphins 10 games above 500. But it was such torturous football to watch. And he never 
fix that. And, you know, you just saw a guy who wasn't able to adjust back when Ricky Williams decided to retire in 2004. You know, David Boston was in. Maybe you're going to funnel the offense through him. You'll have you'll throw the football, become more of a pass-heavy team. Instead, no, it was we're going to run Sammy Morris now. We're going to run Travis Minor. We're going to have Rick Spielman trade. What was it Lamar Gordon, if I believe was the guy's name. For a third-round pick, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, third-round pick. You're sending for a guy that probably you could have picked up off waivers had you just waited long enough. So it was, and it was pressure on Rick to make that type of decision. And I know we'll get to him a little bit later on, but it was just a strange era. It was just a, a you know a team that that again you see the Patriots they took it they take advantage of things like they knew they had a running game you know when Belichick got there they didn't know the defense was going to be as good as it was in 2001 but they knew okay here's what we have on offense and we adjusted to take advantage of the strengths of what we had the Dolphins never adjusted in that way it was the same thing over and over it's relatively predictable as a team that had a tendency to wear down in the fourth quarter and you know in 2004 it was the perfect storm of everything going wrong from your training camp getting wiped out to AJ Feely and Jay Fiedler and what a disaster that situation was Larry Chester gets injured I go on and on and of course Ricky's retirement the, the you know icing on the cake but you know when we look back at it it's, it is almost like the halcyon days because at least the dolphins were in the playoff picture every year but it was a brutal way to get there just because of the style of football they played i wanted to ask you about marino and that kind of a dealing with a legend we saw with Dwayne wade in 2016 just how they just reached a certain point where they'd been together long enough and they kind of grew sick of each other and there wasn't really that valuation of a legend, right, for what he had done versus what he is going to do. So when these titans clash in Jimmy Johnson and in Dan Marino kind of coming together, what was that like at the time, and and why do you think it went so poorly? Really was philosophies as much as anything else. And think about this. They took away Danny's ability to audible in 1999. He had basically one check with me. And, it, you know, that was it. He wasn't able to change plays at the line of scrimmage to open up the entire playbook. Instead, he went up there, basically had one play that he could call. If you remember the game, it was about week six of the season. A Dolphins are playing the Indianapolis Colts. And, you know, they're down. It's the fourth quarter. It's, you know, inside two minutes. And Danny basically just tells Aronde, run this play. So Aronde, you know, they look at each other at the line of scrimmage. Danny gives him the sign. And the guy runs and catches the pass. And, and Dolphins end up winning the game. So I think Danny felt restricted by it. And, you know, the locker room, too, you know, guys liked Danny. He's a, he's a really good guy. You know what I mean? And and he's like, he's a football guy. He loves it. That's why he works for the Dolphins as a trophy piece, right? Because he just is around, he wants to be around the game. No one really knows what Danny does in the Dolphins. Do, do any of you know what Danny does at the Dolphins? I know, he's, I know he stands on the sideline at practice. That's about all I know. Right. So, so he loves football, right? This is where he wants to be out there every day. But no one really knows if he works, what, what it was he, he really does. You know what I mean? But but he's Dan Marino, and Stephen Ross wants to pay Dan Marino to be Dan Marino, so more power to him. But you had a locker room, too, that you're following Jimmy. He's your head coach. He has a certain gravitas to him, and you know he's grinding on guys. And then you have Danny and his click in the locker room, and, and it was a, just a complete train wreck. And that's why I just think, Jimmy, even after one year, you have to make an evaluation. Is this what's best for our football team? I sound Belichicky in here, but it's true. Danny could – and the sad part is – that had Danny been traded, maybe he gets that Super Bowl. Maybe he goes to a team and is able to lead them. You know, take they take advantage of his skill set of being able to throw the football basically better than anyone that ever played the game. Even if he was immobile at the time in the NFL, you could have gotten by with that. Jimmy wasn't doing that. One of the most torturous things I remember in Dan Marino's career was seeing him have to run a stretch play and hand off the football mm-hmm. to Abdul Kareem Aljabar for left or right tackle. By the time Danny got there, the defense had already crashed through the offensive line to make the tackle. 
I mean, so it was just, a again, a strange team that could never really get good answers on offense. You know, as you're talking, Alex, like all these stories are kind of flooding back and, you know, how many crazy things happen. And there was just a lot of sort of strange decisions that Jimmy made as he built that thing out. I think the big mistake that Jimmy made was that if you look at his 96 and 97 drafts and even the 98 draft before you got there, Jimmy did a great job of building the foundation. He kept accumulating all these draft picks. And so, yeah, you hit on a Zach Thomas in the fifth round. You hit on a Jason Taylor in the third round. He traded a future pick to go up and get Patrick Sertan. Um, he was like the master of using the draft chart. I mean, everybody used to talk about how Jimmy kind of invented that thing. He did a great job with that. And then you look at the 99 season in particular, where they had an opportunity to stay there and take Randy Moss. And Jimmy, of all people, the guy who supposedly can handle these big-time, difficult personalities, decided he didn't want Randy Moss. Let's drop down, take John Avery, and let's get a guy in Larry Shannon in the third <laughs> round. Remember, he was the white Randy Moss. I think that was the way we were all framing him in the third round. And there were just a lot of those decisions that Jimmy made. And you're right, when he was not on the same page with Dan, I mean— just to put this into some perspective, Chris, because, I, again, I know you were a little younger at that point. Talk radio at that point, like the jokes on 560, like I remember Neil Rogers and, and Hank, Jim, you know, Jimmy and Danny, Danny and Jimmy, Jimmy and Danny, Danny and Jimmy. I mean, this was right, Alex. This was like every yep. day for like five or six months. This was all anybody was talking about, that those two guys just did not click. I want to go forward a little bit with Dan, though, for a story that I think you can speak to a little bit. The Dolphins have had some really strange press conferences over the years that you attended and I attended. And one of them was when they brought Dave in, you know, when Jimmy basically wanted to quit. They went out and sent a helicopter to Naples to bring Dave in as an assistant head coach. So essentially, Jimmy could continue to play with his Yorkie Buttercup and trade stocks upstairs. And yeah. Dave could take over the team in his last season. That was one of the stranger ones. But the strangest of all to me, Alex, was 2004 because you had Rick and you had Dave, and Dave had controlling authority at that point. He had final say. That was the big deal. Who had final say with the organization? That hadn't gone so well a couple times, right? The Anquan Bolden decision, which we talked about with Sage Rosenfels when he was here on the pod, the Jamar Fletcher decision, hadn't gone so well having Dave having final say. So they decide basically that they're going to switch their roles. They're going to put Rick on top of Dave, but they're going to put Dan on top of of both of them. And I just remember that day vividly because nobody had any idea who was supposed to do what. Like Dave was standing up against the wall, frowning the entire time. Rick had to go upstairs to get a suit. And Dan was talking to us about how his wife was waiting for him at home so he couldn't stay and talk to the reporters any longer. This is as he was supposedly taking on a job that was going to take a lot of his time. What do you remember about that transition? Well, and, you know, here was the, the concept from Wayne Huizinga at the time. And if you remember, Eddie Jones was an incredible team president for the Miami Dolphins. And Eddie was a guy who was able to bring people together in consensus. He was just he was just a good man. And he also was a very smart man. And, you know, so he was the eyes and ears for this organization. Well, Eddie wanted to retire. So what Wayne was really looking for is just someone to mind the shop. When you're an absentee owner, you need to trust the people that are in the building while you're not there. You know, and we've seen what happened with Wayne Huizinga and to an extent Stephen Ross, when you got the wrong people that are supposed to be in charge of your shop, you end up with, you know, players that are holding their offensive line meetings in strip clubs and, you know, harassing, uh, you know, women on the golf course. You end up with all sorts of issues that take place that are embarrassing issues. Well, 
in this case, he wanted Danny to basically just make sure that these guys got along and, you know, offer his solicited opinion to Wayne Huizinga. If Wayne said, Danny, what do you think about this, this move that these guys are doing? Dan would offer his opinion to Wayne, and then Wayne would Wayne. He wanted just someone that, that wouldn't snow him, basically, that would just tell him what's going on there. Well, Dan was so confused as to what this job was. You know, he goes to the Reese's Senior Bowl, and it's miserable for him there, okay? It's raining. He's sitting on a metal bench watching prospects that he's never seen before, and you could just tell, this isn't what I want to be doing. And then, you, you know, the NFL scouting combine's coming up, and it didn't take him very long to realize this wasn't the job for him. And, you know, listen, for both Wanstead and Spielman, they were put in a terrible position by Wayne Huizinga with this decision to promote Rick above Dave. Because Dave was the guy who brought Rick in. Dave gave Rick his big chance to come in from the Chicago Bears front office as basically a personnel director to become the guy that was supposed to, uh, you know, handle. And he wasn't even the main personnel director, but from the personnel department to handle the personnel decisions for the Dolphins working for Dave. He was going to bring in what Dave wanted to have on the roster. Well, then suddenly you get Rick in and you give him that power above Dave. It was always awkward. So you put people in position to fail with the way that the organization was structured. That's another thing that went on. And listen, we'll talk about the modern day Dolphins as it is, but you still see a lot of the same mistakes being made by Stephen Ross, the man whose foot should just surgically be attached to his mouth because he keeps putting it in there so much. You may as well just keep it there <laughs> at all times. want to ask you about one more here. And before we go to the Saban years, you mentioned 2004 and Ricky. And the story I always tell about that is I had a, an interview schedule with Dave in his office and it was right as training camp was starting. So this was this was right after Ricky made the decision to, you know, smoke in a tent in Australia. And I walk into Dave's office and as you looked on the right side, he had a photo of him with Ricky. It's him with his arm around Ricky and he had turned the photo upside down. And that's <laughs> <laughs> that's, and that's the first thing that I saw when I walked into his office and I tried to write a piece about how the Dolphins are trying to move on from Ricky Williams, but it was pretty clear that Dave Wattstadt was not moving on from Ricky Williams. Now we've had 14 years to look back at that. Obviously, I think that the perception of Ricky has changed a little bit as people's perception of marijuana use has changed a little bit over time. And now Ricky has actually made that a cause. How do you look back at that decision that he made and how it affected the Dolphins? When Dave Wanson was about to trade for Ricky Williams and asked me my thoughts on it, I told him caveat emptor, buyer beware, because I realized just what a train wreck the guy was off the field and that ultimately would probably blow up in the Dolphins' face. So when Ricky decided to retire, it didn't shock me. First, he had a mental health disorder. He had bipolar. And, and that's something that is really serious. It was affecting the way his – and it's more beyond just the, the wearing the helmet and things like that. It, it You know, mood swings. You know, when the guy – remember, you know, his run-ins with South Florida police, some of the things that had gone on with him. You know, one time he walks back from a team function wearing just his, his dress pants, holding his shoes in his hand, shirtless, you know, barefoot. You know, walking back at, at, you know, to Lauderdale by the sea to his crib at that time, right? He was a very aloof type guy. It was strange. And then he had a money issue going on because his rookie contract was so terrible because he trusted rapper Master P to negotiate a deal. And the Saints, you know, fleeced Ricky Williams. They got him to agree to all these team incentives that were going to kick up his contract. Well, the Saints were terrible. He never hit those incentives. He left a ton of money on the table. So Ricky's frustrated. You know, he's failing drug tests all this outside pressure, so he quits. You know, But Ricky is all about Ricky. I am not a Ricky Williams fan. He is just, he's an extremely selfish individual. It's all about Ricky, and he always thinks he's smarter than you. And Ricky is a smart guy, but he ain't that smart. So that being said, you know, with Wanstead, the, the, again, the problem was the inability to adjust. 
They trusted the guy. And listen, the, the key to, to this, and this will be interesting with Adam Gase as we look forward with him. You know, after a while, you could say, this guy doesn't fit in my program, right? So, you know, Jay Ajayi doesn't fit in the program. Jarvis Landry doesn't fit in the program. Well, at some point, the head coach doesn't fit in the program because he can't get guys to buy in to what he's selling, to star players. That was the thing about, you know, about Ricky and Dave, and Dave just ran out of buttons to push with Ricky Williams because Dave thought, oh, Ricky Williams, I'm handing him the football all the time. This is tremendous. The guy must love it, right? He's got that running back mentality. He's a modern day Earl Campbell. No, nah, not so much. Ricky wanted to get paid if he was going to take a beating. It contributed to it as well. I think Dave had a, a different understanding of his relationship with Ricky Williams uh, than what was there in reality. And unfortunately for the Dolphins, caught flat-footed completely on the day that Ricky Williams decided to quit. And he wasn't the only one. I mean, Joel Collier, you know, his running backs coach, he didn't know what was going on at the time. And you throw in a guy like Chris Furster as your offensive coordinator, and we all know Chris Furster from his latest incident, but completely overmatched as an offensive coordinator. Thus, the end of the Dave Wanstead era. But then, of course, the hope, because they're bringing in the genius, the guy who had had success at Michigan State, had success at LSU, Nick Saban. And to me, the biggest thing about the Nick Saban era down here in South Florida, Alex, is that I don't think Nick ever sort of realized how different it was going to be from his college experience. And and I don't mean just the football stuff, because I, the football stuff, uh, Nick can coach. I mean, there's no question about that. And I used to really enjoy watching him in particular with the defensive backs um, at training camp, because it was clear that was uh, that was his area of expertise. And, and the way that he would work those guys and technique and, and all of that, I thought was tremendous. But there were just a number of different areas that are different, as you know, in the NFL than college. And Nick never made any adjustments to any of them. I mean, first with the draft, um, unlike college where you just go recruit whoever you want and, you know, who knows how you do it sometimes, but you recruit whoever you want. Um, in the NFL, you have to wait for somebody to come to you unless you're going to trade up. And so you end up with Jason Allen when maybe Jason Allen is not the best player uh, for your particular team. And I look at that first draft that he had, Alex, um, he drafted all guys that he'd either coached or coached against. It was all SEC guys or the Matt Doc Roth. Rivers philosophy of player acquisition. Well, except it wasn't his son, right? But, <laughs> but, but, but yes, I mean, he, that first draft, if you look at it, Ronnie Brown was an Auburn guy. Travis Daniels, he coached. Matt Roth, he coached against in the bowl game. Um, all of those guys were, were guys that he was intimately familiar with in the same way that it seemed like Dave and Rick kept bringing in former Bears. Uh, and so that didn't work out very well. And then I also thought he totally misunderstood how to handle the media down here because uh, college towns are much different. Not that we're New York or Philadelphia or Boston, but college towns are much different in terms of the way that you interact uh, with the media. You, you typically are going to get sort of a more sycophantic uh, media base there than you're going to get in a pro market. And right from the very beginning, he declared war on the media, and and I just don't think that very went very well for him either. What what are sort of your memories of Nick's takeover? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll deal with the media part of it first, and and you know where he could have changed the narrative had he done something in, in terms of okay, I'm not going to give you the the personality type quotes. We're going to shift the way that we're doing things, much like Bill Belichick did, and and Nick and Bill cut from the same cloth. But if you want to talk X and O's, I will explain football to you. And he was never really able to effectively drive the narrative like Bill Belichick does. You know, sometimes Belichick takes over a news conference. If someone even asked an innocuous question on punt coverage, the guy may go off on, on a 1,500-word diatribe, which is incredible knowledge of football. You know what I'm saying? It's not going to be something that's necessarily juicy or gossipy. You know, you're not going to get that sort of stuff. But Nick could have done a better job reaching out. I don't think that the media ever really understood Nick Saban. 
you know, that was part of it, too. And he was very closed in a lot of ways. And you never knew what you got with him. I mean, look, I know at one point, I believe the guy got vertigo because he was so jacked on nicotine from chew and from caffeine that he had to get treatment from the medical staff. Like he was just he started getting dizzy in a meeting because he was just so wound up. And you knew just Nick would just fly off the handle on so many weird things. I would monitor him. I would sit to the, the side of the podium. You remember where my uh, insane clown posse wrestling figures were and all that for the news conference? That got thrown out one day. It made me very sad, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, so we're, I'm watching Nick, and I would always watch his leg. Because once his left leg started shaking uncontrollably, you knew that some eruption was happening. And it ended up usually giving you some pretty darn good copy. Okay, but but he didn't do that. But the point is that I don't think anyone would have cared had he won. And one of his biggest issues was he never had a Pioli. And I say that because you trace back to, you know, Bill Belichick. Why did he initially succeed with the Patriots? Well, he had a personnel guy who shared his vision when it came to Nick and Rick Spielman. Absolutely. Rick tried to do his job, but but Rick got tired of being yelled at and being called profane things. And ultimately he was gone. And then at that point, you know, you went with Randy Mueller, but it wasn't really like a great marriage. They didn't really know each other that well. There was no history there. And, you know, Nick was going to trample Randy anyway because Randy was working under him. There's never any real give and take between these guys as to what was going to happen with his team as, as far as the personnel goes. So, you know, you throw that in, you could throw the Drew Brees thing in there where they thought they had a quarterback, but then the medical staff says no. And to this day, my understanding is Nick still could have signed him, but he wasn't going to put Wayne Heising in that position to pay, you know, a $60 million contract, $20 million of which was guaranteed to a quarterback who can't throw. So then at that point, what were the other options? Matt Schaub, he didn't think it was worth the first round pick. Uh, so as, as, he, as he slammed his hand on the table and told his scouts, give me the big guy. And it was a uh, broken down Dante Culpepper, who, by the way, personality-wise, couldn't have been any worse uh, than what it was with Nick Saban. I'll never forget, I believe you were there with me, uh, and you know, our, my wife at the time, she still is, by the way, but uh, Randy Mc, uh, Chris Chambers or Randy McMichael had a party, a function over at uh, Shula Steakhouse. Mm -hmm. And Nick shows up, and Culpepper's at the bar about four drinks in, and we're like 30 minutes into this, and Nick's looking around like, hmm, you know what I mean? Because Dante at that point seemed to be everything but all about football. So no quarterback. No, no good personnel plan and no one to be able to bounce that off of and terrible relationships with the media. No wonder when you see a $32 million wad of money coming down in a parachute, you're going to try to catch it and then run out of town as quick as you can. And, and that's why he left Alabama. So in the end, he, he leaves to Alabama. Do you think that obviously the, the big turning point is, is the quarterbacking decision uh, with, with Breeze and with Culpepper, but is there anything else that you think could have happened beyond that, maybe a, more success, or, or, or did you think that no matter what, he was leaving? I spoke to someone um, today who said, not today, recent, in the past couple of days at the NFL spring meeting up in uh, Atlanta, and you know they told me this. Had Nick just stayed for maybe another year, people would have understood him a lot better. You know, suddenly you start getting rid of guys in the locker room who aren't part of your program, and we may be seeing this with Adam Gase in year three, but you really start getting... For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. ClickGranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And guys that, that you can reach, you know, that have your same mindset. Uh, you know, Nick never really adjusted a lot too to the NFL. At, at Alabama, every year you have 25, you know, five-star recruits coming in. 
And the competition level is amazing, let alone walk-ons that can sometimes, you know, make a splash because they're just, diet, you know, they're determined to try to shine it at, the, you know, with the Crimson Tide. And they'll turn down other scholarship offers, you know, to come to Alabama and try to make it. So I think it would have just helped had he just, again, had someone in the building to talk with him about these things and, you know, be able to formulate a plan. And at the end, he, you know, he did everything that he shouldn't have done. He traded away draft picks, you know, to, for short-sighted decisions that didn't work out. You know, that was crazy. Uh, you know, it was just, it was a mess and, and he got in over his head and that's why he knew college football. And that's why it was just so great for him at Alabama. And listen, you look at the number of players that he's produced. I don't think any NF, any coach in, in modern day football, maybe back in the day when it was a little less competitive, the Bear Bryant, the Joe Paternos, things like that, different era. But in the modern era, we'll look at this 10 year stretch of first round picks from Alabama, guys who make it in the league. It is just, it's almost unprecedented. And now we're getting the Nick Saban coaching tree. Will Muschamp, Kirby Smart, uh, guys like this, Jimbo Fisher. I mean, the, the new, new coach, Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee. All these guys worked under Nick. The key for them, though, don't try to be someone you're not. Try to be you. Don't try to be Nick because, as we've seen with Bill Belichick, guys who try to be Belichick like Josh McDaniels but aren't, well, usually they fall on their face. That's a good transition now to part three here of the podcast, and that's the current Dolphins because – They've never been in lockstep. I mean, when you go back the past 20 years, one of the issues that I've always had with with Hyzinga, may he rest in peace, and with Steve Ross, is that they've constantly blown it up halfway, uh, where you you have one guy and you have two guys together and you replace one but not the other. I mean, you mentioned going back, when we go all the way back to the Wanstatt-Spielman decision to flip their roles, keep Spielman around for Saban. Then keep Saban, obviously, but then replace Spielman with Mueller. Then keep Mueller for Cameron before you blew both of those guys out. Then you thought you had a little bit of continuity there in a front office with Parcells in Ireland and Sperano because these were Parcells' handpicked guys. And then Ireland and Sperano don't talk to each other for an entire year uh, after Ross gets on a plane to try to uh, bring in Harbaugh and Ireland doesn't tell Sperano about it. So, I mean, this has been a consistent issue. So right now you've got Adam Gase, you've got Chris Greer, and you've got Mike Tannenbaum making the decisions. I think this offseason they moved more towards Gase, Alex. When you look at the players that they brought in, trying to get more multiple on offense, more multiple on defense, uh, not paying the big money like Tannenbaum likes to pay, play, it looks to me like they've gotten, they've gone more towards Gase. But do you think that this is a workable arrangement going forward? I wouldn't be surprised if they blow out Mike Tannenbaum and Chris Greer next year if things don't work out this year and stick with Adam Gase. And then you start that whole cycle again of the GM who comes in from you know the outside and may view things differently. And you go for a year with Gase. And if it doesn't work, you make the head coaching switch. I mean, look at these teams that are stuck in neutral, like the Indianapolis Colts that did that, wasted a year with Chris Ballard. Uh, while Chuck Pagano foundered. And do you look at what happened the past two years in Detroit uh, where they were nine and seven under Jim Caldwell, but not going anywhere fast. And you waste two years of Matt Stafford in his prime uh, because no, not everyone's on the same page. And now you're trying to move forward with, with Stafford and Matt Patricia together, two guys who like each other. And it's amazing, by the way, when you hear Detroit Lions president Rod Wood say that, yeah, for the past couple of years, you know, Bob, Bob Quinn has really talked up Matt Patricia. Must have made uh, Jim Caldwell feel really good about his relationship with Bob Quinn uh, during his time with the Lions. But I think, you know, part of the problem, too, and, and listen, this is with Rick Spielman, and this is an important thing to note here. It's also ownership, okay? And now he works in Minnesota under Ziggy Wolf and Mark Wolf, you know, this is Ziggy's son. These guys are, are behind-the-scenes guys. They don't want to be in the spotlight. They're very rarely quoted. I mean, they'll do things locally, but, you know, they want to leave things to the football guys, and they believe they have the right guys in place. And also, Rick Spielman has always made them money. He, you know, when they were able, when they were throwing tons of cash 
at this team under Brad Childress and paying for Brett Favre and a lot of high-paid players. You know, Rick, Rick spent the money, and I think he spent it pretty wisely all in all. But when they pulled back uh, because they realized we're not going to be a contender right now, so let's cut back on payroll, Spielman was able to do that. But, you know, you don't have things leak out that are embarrassing about the Vikings front offense. office. When you see Stephen Ross, this guy can't help himself. I, he really cannot. I mean, the fact that this, you know, after you, you know, this fluff piece comes out in Yahoo Sports about, oh, the, the 10, 10 part piece about the Dolphins scouts and a guy had a flat tire and he couldn't change it and he was frustrated, but he loves scouting and all the hard work. And I get all that. Okay. More power to him. And, and you know, there's some guys there that really work hard and, and credit to them. But when you hear Stephen Ross try to blow up a draft on the day of the draft while the Dolphins are on the clock, well, why are we drafting Minka Fitzpatrick? Why, why aren't we trading down? Why aren't we accumulating picks? What are you doing? You you entrusted this general manager, all right, who's already having to deal with Mike Tannenbaum and Adam Gase as it is in terms of what they want on a team. You're you know you're putting this guy on the spot like that. You're doing this on draft night while your team's on the clock. And then, by the way, you don't try to even spin it and deny it. You just say, well, we hope it works out. And he didn't seem all that thrilled with the second and third round picks either. Well, think about how demoralizing that is. And look at think about what Stephen Ross obviously thinks of the way that his front office is working right now. Now, if you're Stephen Ross, you were told that Indonik and Sue was coming in. Remember, he was going to be a leader on this team. Remember those days? You, you hear that, you know, and, and you just think, wow, what, what did I spend this money for? You know, why did we do this? You brought in a guy with no plan whatsoever of how he was going to fit into your team fabric, right? I mean, it's it's remarkable to me that, you you know, you, you don't even play the type of defense that would allow him to succeed, you know, and, and that was, again, the Joe Philbin era. And, oh, good Lord. We, we don't, thank goodness we didn't go there. But uh, you know where I'm, I'm going with this is that I don't know if the Dolphins can succeed and win if you have Stephen Ross as your owner. And, and I'm dead serious about this. I mean, I really think that this is one of the worst things that has happened to the Miami Dolphins. It reminds me of that Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns wanted to be loved. And so he wanted to go ahead and throw money to the, to the people of Springfield from the uh, balcony of the uh, nuclear power plant, except he threw coins. And that wasn't such a good idea because they carry weight and they were hurting people. Uh, in this case, you know, I, that's how I look at Stephen Ross. He'll do anything to be loved, right? Just he wants to be that guy. And he's and instead, it just he falls on his face every time he tries to get involved in football. It, he's just it's amazing how he can be so successful in real estate, yet such a terrible NFL team owner. So, so what do you think? Do you think the problem is he's meddlesome? Well, I mean, it's part of it. I mean, you know, I, I just don't know if he's ever really had a clue himself about just stepping away. Don't, don't talk. Don't say anything. Don't undermine your front office people uh, when you did this. I'm not sure if he even, you know, look, whether these are the right people in, in right now, I don't know. You know, I mean, that that's a toughie. But, you know, think about the position you put Ryan Tannehill in. You know, when you talk about you compare him, yeah, we hope we have the next Dan Marino here. How do you say something like that? Because all we think about now when it comes to Tannehill is, eh, well, he's no Marino. You know, I mean, you think about what the owner said. I mean, he does things like this. I'm not saying that it necessarily affects things on, on Sundays, but I just think that, that the guy doesn't really have much of a clue. And you just have to wonder about who he is that he's actually hiring to run his team. I mean, you know, think about how long a leash he gave Jeff Ireland, who, you know, has learned from his mistakes. But Jeff wasn't doing a good job as GM. And think about the year you waste with him. Think about how much time you waste with Joe Philbin as well. I mean, how much confidence do we really have about Stephen Ross, the owner? I mean, hey, look, the new stadium's no, the stadium's nice. Hey, it's pretty. There's a high, you know, an LCD screen. Great. But you know what? Are you winning games? No. But but so the, my, my to me in the to me in the defense of Stephen Ross, I think 
Yes, from a business point of view, certainly invested a lot in the team. But like, I think that I, I don't know what most ownership conversations are like. And certainly, Alex, working uh, for SiriusXM NFL Radio, you would know a lot more than I would. But don't owners ask questions? Don't owners like want to know what what the strategy of the team is? And if if basically he's looking over at Bill Belichick and saying, "Well, Bill, well, Bill Belichick does this. Uh, why don't we try that?" And I, I think it, it's not necessarily that he's sort of asking the question with judgment. He's just asking the question. If you're spending a billion dollars on the team, I I feel like you had, you're well within your right to ask those questions. Oh so, yeah, so, so you just don't do it. You just don't do it on draft night. You don't okay. do it in a room full of people and have it leak out. You talk privately. You going in. What is our draft plan? You don't parachute in and have this conversation while your team's on the clock. You talk about it. You ask him. You say, okay, well, if we have this guy, and by the way, who's giving information here anymore to to Stephen Ross? Is it Adam Gase, his golf partner? I don't know. You know, is it Mike Tannenbaum? Is it Chris Greer? Who, where is the line of, of the chain of command here? Who's doing what as far as some of these acquisitions go? Are they all on Chris Greer? Are they Adam Gase telling Chris Greer what to do? Did Adam Gase want Mika Fitzpatrick? Was that Chris Greer wanting Mika Fitzpatrick? Was that Mike Tannenbaum wanting Mika Fitzpatrick? Was that Matt Burke, the defensive coordinator, wanting Mika Fitzpatrick? Anyone really know what what who's what's going on there as far as who decides what in this building? Is there a ch- clear chain of command? I don't know. You know, I, I really don't. And I mean, I, I do this for a living and I, I can't really answer that question effectively. So, yeah, it, it's just, again, I think one thing gets fixed for the Dolphins and then another thing breaks. Does that make sense? Where you, you address one thing and, and you hope, you know, that it's going to work and then another thing breaks down and overseeing it all. There's been one consistent since he took over. Stephen Ross, the man with zero playoff victories to his credit since owning the Miami Dolphins. All right, let's get to one thing on this, and then I want to get to some other topics. But just real quick here, because, again, you have a national perspective on this, even though you covered the Dolphins for a long time. What do people around the league think of Ryan Tannehill? Do they view him as a top 15 quarterback in the NFL? There are 32 teams, so I believe they look at him around that Alex Smith range. So you might be 15, might be 17, probably a notch above Tyrod Taylor, you know, but below Alex Smith. And, you know, just not— an instinctual quarterback is, is generally the feel of it. I don't think anyone thinks, yeah, Ryan Tannehill is going to win you a Super Bowl. And, and if you're not win, in it to win a Super Bowl, then there's no point in, in being in the NFL as far as being a team owner, et cetera. So, you know, again, look, we could all be wrong on Tannehill. And I don't even say we could all be wrong because I'm not sure how you guys feel about the, the new age Ryan Tannehill. And, and I say that because you look at his final five games as a Dolphin starter, and he was outstanding before suffering the knee injury. And maybe just maybe with these offensive acquisitions, he'll be a better player in the future. Maybe, you know, as, as Adam told me, you know, Gase told me earlier this offseason that we want to be a more diverse offense. We don't want to just throw to one wide receiver. We want to have, you know, the best the, the offenses that I'm most comfortable running are the ones that have better ball distribution. And we also know, too, that if there's a running back that has the hot hand, Adam Gase will ride that running back. Just look at Jay Ajahi carries. While some of them were spotty, there were times that, you know, 28 carries, 30 carries, 22 carries on a you know pretty consistent basis at times. So if Kenyon Drake proves that he, can, that he can be productive, Adam Gase won't hesitate to ride him. And that's great news for Ryan Tannehill. So the fact that Ryan's out there, he's, he's practicing, that's great news. You know, his command of this offense, it should be there. You know, he was in all the meetings last year, which really impressed you know, Gase, as far as the dedication that Ryan had to his craft, and despite not being able to play, he was at every Dolphins game. Poor bastard. But the point is, that, you know, <laughs> with, 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 I mean, you know, so the, the guy is doing everything right. I think the question is, is this a wide receiver still playing quarterback? Is he an instinctive player? 
at the position? Is he someone that when the play breaks down can can do some things to make keep a play alive? Uh, you know, just just there's a, a natural inherent feel to the position. Brett Favre had it, okay? Aaron Rodgers has it. You know, Tom Brady has it. Just that, that you feel like they're playing quarterback and it's so smooth and fluid. I'm still not sure if Ryan Tannehill has that, but who's to say, we're, you know, the Dolphins didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They've made this huge investment in the guy, and maybe, just maybe, you know, they they feel clearly that they can win with him. So, we'll, you know, I'll, I'll give the benefit of the doubt to Adam Gase for one more season on this. I will tell you this, that there's one thing to feel good about here, Dolphins fans. He's no Jay Cutler. Well, that's true. I, I I would think that the one thing that makes Dolphin fans feel better uh, is that you saw the alternative last year, and the alternative was was ten million dollars of ugly. And so I I, I understand wasting ten million dollars, wasted wasted ten million dollars exactly. That, and it's not by the way, real quick on this, not it's not just signing Jay Cutler and burning the ten million dollars. You know what I mean? The bigger problem was then you didn't give yourself that ten million dollars to be able to sign other players and get them locked up to extensions. That's where you waste the cash. And it's the same thing with an Indonik and Sue contract that was absolutely ridiculous for the type of plan that you had for him. That That's the thing. You know, it's not just the fact that the player doesn't work out. It's also, well, what else could you have done with this money? And that's the thing I think that's so heartbreaking about the waste of Jay Cutler last year. And now let's take a quick break. This week on the first ever edition of the Pitch Invasion podcast, we talk to the SI soccer writer, Grant Wall. Beckham has been so publicly involved with it that I don't think either side wants it to fail and not happen. But they see the demographics of Miami and how they've changed in the last 10 to 15 years and how it's even more of a, a South American community than ever. That theoretically should translate into success for a soccer team. It's been a chore for a long time, but at this point, I certainly think it's going to happen. But it's never as easy as you think it's going to be. Subscribe to the Pitch Invasion Soccer Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get to part four here. We're going to do parts four and five rapid fire because we know you're good at this because we used to do that twelve, that speeding through 12 minutes with you on our show. So I'm just going to uh, give you three teams here and you, as quickly as you can, try to give us an assessment uh, of where they stand. Uh, the Bills with the decision to draft Josh Allen. I think he's going to be the first of the four drafted quarterbacks and the first of the four drafted quarterbacks. Who knows about Lamar Jackson? But, you know, I think he'll be the first guy on the field. Uh, he's got to beat out A.J. McCarron. I don't think that that's a Herculean task on his part. Uh, you know, but this is a Bills team that's probably going to take a step back in 2018. I don't trust the quarterbacking. I think the wide receiver position remains a mess. It's going to be an awfully good defense, though. They should hover around the 500 mark. But I think that that playoff streak isn't going to reach two. Jets with Sam Darnold. Uh, you know, with the way that Josh McCown usually gets injured during a season, he has a chance to get out there. It's all on Sam. If Sam develops quickly, he'll play sooner. If not, it's going to be, you know, Teddy Bridgewater potentially if Josh McCown either gets beat out or gets hurt. Uh, but the thing about the Jets is they're still a year away. I mean, you look at the wide receiver positions, eh, tight end, it, it's just really ugly right now. And, and the offensive line is still a bit of a sieve. So I, I think they just need a, a, one more year. The big question then becomes to Todd Bowles and Mike McCagnan, the head coach and GM, get that other opportunity in 2019 to get better. Patriots gave away uh, Brandon Cook, so they got a pretty good uh, return for him this offseason. Gronkowski comes back. They don't really have a backup for Brady now, at least not a young backup uh, that they can go to. When does this run end for them? Still think another year. I mean, because I just don't like anyone in the AFC. I, I just think that, 
you know, the Jags or team might be might take a step back. They were so fortunate from an injury standpoint last year. I think it's unrealistic for them to expect to have almost every defensive starter play every game in 2018. And you just have to wonder about depth like it is with most NFL teams. I mean, the Patriots just they out scheme people. They take advantage of their strengths. They start slow. They adjust. They move on. And listen, the, the big stuff is, though, with Brady, does this become an ongoing saga during the season? Are these the fissures in the in the Patriots organization that may ultimately lead to the dynasty ending? And, and we could see Belichick himself walk away at the end of the season if he's not happy with the way management is. But uh, until until they're dethroned, I will continue to keep the Patriots atop the AFC. All right, let's move on to part five now. I want to broaden this out a little bit to some NFL issues because I know how closely you follow that. And again, on Sirius XM NFL, the decision yesterday as we tape this, let, let me let me back up on this. The decision last week that the NFL made on the anthem where essentially uh, players can stay in the locker room, but if they come out of the locker room during the anthem and they kneel, there will be penalties and fines assessed to the team in your view, does this strike a good balance or did they basically cave to, you know, being afraid of the president's Twitter account? Oh, no, they're afraid. But it's all, it's all about money. And it's also the underlying story on this, too, is that teams wanted to be able to make their own individual decision on this. It's part of Jerry Jones taking the NFL back from Roger Goodell. And not a lot of people talk about that, you know, that, you know, the whole reason that Jerry was getting upset last year and threatening the lawsuits and all that is that he basically lost confidence in Roger Goodell. He had lost confidence in the people that he was hiring in the NFL's front office, the expenses that were building up with some of the, the you know, exorbitant salaries from some of his people. And, and not only that, but the fact that the people that were being hired weren't doing a very good job on top of that. And that's what that's what really got to Jerry. So this is basically saying, you know, listen, Roger was the guy who trusted to protect the shield and all that sort of stuff. But what I looked at at the, the national anthem decision being was basically the owners taking it back, Jerry taking it back, those guys that, that contributed money to, to Donald Trump's political campaign taking it back and saying, we want to do it our way. So this is how we're going to do it. And, and, you know, sorry, you know what I mean? But that's that, not even sorry for that matter. We're going to do it our way. So now the Dallas Cowboys can put in their standard where, you know, everyone is expected to come out and, you know, they don't want people in the locker room and things like this. But first, I have yet to read anything that says that the NFL made a smart decision here. I mean, it is universal that, that this was a decision that was either poorly done, short-sighted, doesn't work, etc., and, and it's probably infuriated the players. And who even knows if it's going to be able to hold up if the NFLPA files a grievance saying that this violates the labor agreement that they have between the players uh, and the uh, and the NFL. Uh, plus now this also, and listen, no matter what, you know, President Trump was going to claim victory. I think the easiest thing that you could have done, the smartest thing you could have done was just say, hey, we're no longer going to wrap ourselves in the flag with the American players. The jingoism will end during the national anthem. We will do the anthem, but we're not going to bring the players out on the field. We're just, we're going to avoid this because guys, if we have another Ferguson and heaven forbid we don't, you know what we're hoping for, you know, we're just, but something that a police incident that, you know, inflames a community of an NFL team and suddenly you can have 53 guys stay in a locker room to protest and while the other team is out there on the field, you know, with the helmets, you know, under their arms. Think about that. You know, I mean, it just the, the best thing of all would have been to just take take just take all that out of the equation. Don't leave that to chance. You know, guys that are staying in the locker room, et cetera, you know, and because and, now look, if I'm a, if I'm a beat writer, I've got to follow who's out there for the national anthem and writing things down. Right. I mean, putting a check mark by their name to say they're standing. And then the guys that don't are, are going to be, you know, you know, basically blown up by a lot of folks in the media or fans, et cetera. So uh, to me, it's, it's not an easy thing uh, to have decided. But I, I would have just kept everyone in the, in, in the locker room during it and just not left anything to chance and said, you know, that's that's where we're at. 
Yeah, and to me, the thing that's the biggest miscalculation by the NFL is that it's not going to be the political win that they think it is because it seems like the president and his followers are just con- are going to continue to move the goalposts. His quote, as we tape this, is, I don't think people should be staying in the locker rooms, but still, I think it's good. You have to stand proudly for the national anthem. You shouldn't be playing. You shouldn't be there. Maybe they shouldn't be in the country. So, like, th- there is just going to be movement on this regardless of what the NFL does, and it's never going to be enough. And that, for me, is the thing that they have to realize is that they're not on a level playing field. They're they're arguing with a bunch of people that just are molding this for political gain. So I, I don't understand their sort of continuing desire to kowtow to these people. But on another political issue, and certainly it's political because it was decided it was decided by the Supreme Court and involves laws, is the gambling issue. So the Supreme Court ruling comes out, and I think we know the stance of the NBA. MLB has kind of dipped their toe in this, but the NFL has always been the one that's always stood to to benefit the most from gambling because of fantasy and because of wagering on games helping the interest in their product but now that it's kind of going to be out there in the open how do you think they react to it well the nfl doesn't even know i mean and i talked to john mara the giants co-owner about this and he said that what they're hoping is that congress introduce a framework that would say you know um these are the types of bets that could be taken on an nfl game because you know you have got so many crazy prop bets going on that, you know, you know, we're going to have a coin flip prop, you know, with some states and some that won't have it. You know, and then another thing, too, and I've spoken to a stadium expert about this. Does anyone really know? And the league doesn't. Are there gonna, is there going to be gambling allowed in stadium? Are you going to have in-game gambling that can go on? Are you going to have betting windows? Can, can can I, as a team, sign a deal with a, with a sports book and, and be promoted? You know, that this is by, you know, Mikasuki Gaming or Seminole or whatever. I mean, or the state itself. I mean, how how is this all going to work? And the league is, you know, even though they say, oh, we've been preparing for this, they really don't have a lot of good answers on this. And and I don't think it's, you know, once it gets settled, it'll be interesting. OK, are we going to have a gambling scandal at some point, a Tim Donahue type deal? Arch Schleister, is he going to come back from prison and, you know, corrupt a game again? I, I can't answer that. But it'll be interesting to see that the instant ramification, though, about injury reports. How much more detailed are they going to be? Because there's a public trust that's involved if you're wagering on something. And the first time a team lists a player as probable, a quarterback, and then they end up missing the game. Well, think about the outrage that's going to have. Think about the scrutiny that the officials are all under. I mean, and that's why the league, too, trying to cash in on this with a, quote, integrity fee of some sorts. I think they want to have some some kickback in terms of a maybe a 0.5 percent or whatever number it is from these states on gaming to be able to, to make sure that everything is on the up and up and that the game uh, can stay where you trust it. Because the NFL has a public trust. You know, they the people believe that the games are actually determined on the field. If you lose that public trust and becomes WWE, you not only stand to lose fans, you also tend to get government involvement in that. And I, I think that would be something that, that the Trump administration would really sort of enjoy, actually. <laughs> All right. Last one here for Alex Marvez. Again, you catch him. Serious, serious XM NFL. Just give us two teams here. Uh, give us a worst to first team in the NFL because we see this happen just about every year and give us a first to worst team in the NFL this upcoming season. I'm going to go first to worst because you know I'm a glass half full type of guy so I want to end on a high note but Kansas City I I just think maybe going down and listen it might be one of these muddled AFC West where everyone's around seven and nine eight and eight and the division winner is ten and six but you know Patrick Mahomes the one thing Alex Smith didn't do was was throw interceptions and make mistakes and with Patrick Mahomes having you know coming into the season with only one NFL start there are going to be mistakes and it's going to be different I, I think you know listen there's a tremendous amount of talent on the offensive side of the football but it just may take some time to really get together I also question that defense, the ability to pressure the quarterback 
in the second area as well. Two areas I think that the Chiefs may take a step back. As for that worst to first, I know the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl, but beware the G-men. I really like what the New York Giants did this offseason. I'm a huge Saquon Barkley fan. And yes, indeed, a running back actually worth taking at number two in their situation. But the big thing they have there, they have team unity. You know, and, and I'll say this about the Dolphins. It was impressive that that during an OTA last week, 100% attendance. A lot of teams aren't having that now. Guys having contract issues or maybe just, you know, prioritizing other things in their life. But for the Giants, think about it. OBJ is back in the fold. Eric Flowers showed up, you know, with a better attitude and now forming a bond with a veteran and Nate Soldier. That's great to see. Eli Apple doing better. Janoris Jenkins doing better. You know, I mean, all these things that that went into last year being a disastrous season for the Giants. Injuries, the handling of Eli Manning, et cetera. All that's going away. And I really think Pat Shermer is a good football coach. I know Dave Gettleman is a great general manager. And I think Eli Manning does have something left in the tank. I think this is a Giants team that can legitimately contend for the NFC East. All right, we're going to finish it there again, Alex. Thanks for joining us. I can't say this is the last time you'll get a call from somebody in our network because uh, I, I have a feeling when that wrestling pod starts that they're going to want to ask you about the wrestling figurines that you used to have at the facility. I used to love it when I when I was with you at the Sun Sentinel. Every day, man, that was the thing that was as I was writing a column on deadline, I would be staring. Who is it? We had Hulk Hogan up there, right? Who else did you yeah. have? We had all. Of, and by the way, these were Seth Levitt's figures. So you may want to ask Seth about this at some point mm. as well. They can talk about this. But Seth brought him out and then the Dolphins renovated the press room, which was basically another method to kick us out. And, uh, <laughs> at that point, yeah, and then at that point, they took all our stuff. They threw it in a box and it disappeared. And that was it. And they sent it. They sent us back to the cheerleading headquarters without the cheerleaders. They, they remember they they just cleared out that whole area there back behind uh, where they ended up putting in the garage, and stuck us back there so that basically Saban didn't have to see us. Uh, he also, by the way, uh, you remember we used to have those Herald Sentinel and Palm Beach uh, parking spots in the uh, in the main parking lot. That was like the first thing Saban did when he came in was oh, we're going to paint over those. I. And that was basically it after that. So, so there you go. Alex, thank you for doing it. Uh, his work is always great. Hopefully we'll be reading you again somewhere soon. And hopefully we can come back to you during the football season because you're one of the best football guests around. So we appreciate you doing it. Hey, thank you so much. And by the way, five reasons exploding. Take the stock option now, winning hand. <laughs> Thanks, man. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.